Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Senior Pastor Matt Homeyer. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, visit our website at trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. It was a lot of fun to be able to go to children's camp for a day. I'm glad it was a day. And uh, (laughs) I think my cool factor would have had diminishing return if I would have stayed longer. But uh, it it really was a lot of fun to see how it was structured, to get to know our kids better, um, to watch, you know, Debbie and I's ministry is side by side. And so on Wednesdays when I'm teaching and doing things or teaching in here or in Sunday school, that's when the children's ministry happened. So I hadn't really got to observe uh, a lot of our, our teachers and, and volunteers and work with them. And it was so, so fun and so well done. Such a real well-run camp. Um, our family, I know, was in bed by about 8.30 uh, when they got home. And uh, Uh, Addison has not stopped talking about it since. So we're very, very grateful for a wonderful week. I did have to eat a popsicle made with Kool-Aid, which sounds pretty good. Um, But then it was also the ingredients to a Denver omelet um, in there of peppers and mushrooms and spam. Debbie got a uh, beanie weenie one. Um, And so there is some of that at children's camp too, you know, just the silliness that goes on. But it was was a wonderful time. Let Let me pray for us. God, we're thank you, thankful for a church where our kids can get away and have fun with one another and learn much about you and worship, all rolled into one great experience. We're thankful for their parents and grandparents and caretakers that, that sent them and trusted us with their kids. We're thankful for our leaders who gave up a week to do so. We're grateful for your spirit's work in and through these kids, that what was done in their lives this week will continue for decades to come. We're thankful now for this time to still our busy lives and listen to a word from you. Meet us here, God, as we know you are faithful to do. In your name we pray, amen. We are continuing this week, as we will be through much of the summer, our series in Acts, this series we're calling poured out, where we're tracing the Spirit's movement through the book of Acts. We talked about Pentecost a few weeks ago. We talked about last week, the church ideal, this first glimpse of the church that we see after Pentecost. And how did they have their being together? What did they do when they gathered together? What kept them from scattering to the winds when it seems like, by all accounts, they were such a differing ragtag group of people, they should have been scattered to the wind. But we learned four things, four things kind of not necessarily that, that we must copy, but essentials that seem to be present in their life, that seem to be present wherever the church has vitality, wherever the church has life ever since that day. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which at that time was the closest they had to the word of God. They devoted themselves to the study of the life of Jesus and, and the gospel and the Old Testament and how it, how it fed into the gospel. They devoted themselves to this. They devoted themselves to prayer, 
to communion with God, to listening to God, to pouring out their hearts to God. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They, they took communion, yes, but they also shared life together. They, went to, they shared meals together. They fellowshiped with one another. They enjoyed being around one another. Such an important part of church. And, and what was created in that is this great word, fellowship, koinonia. By doing these things together, the Spirit created this fellowship, this koinonia, this deep-seated love and affection and commitment to one another that, that manifested itself through mutual giving to one another and receiving from one another. Everything else the church does flows from these elements that when the Spirit blesses it, create koinonia. I called last week's sermon, or I titled it, The Church Ideal. Because it is, it is kind of the ideal setting of church, the, the ideal circumstances, any number of other factors and challenges hadn't yet cropped in and, and threatened the church. The church ideal. This week's sermon looks at the first threats to the community, the first temptations, the first threats that threaten to get the church off track, to quench the Spirit's work in the church and take it in a different direction. How does the koinonia, the fellowship, react when they first fail to live up to their ideals, when sin enters into the fellowship? This is not as fun of a sermon as last week, I'll tell you that. This is a hard text. It's a hard text to hear. It's a hard text to understand. The sad reality we will discuss today is that the church is regularly far less than the ideal we should uphold. If you polled people down on the Riverwalk on a given day about what they think of church, as often as you would hear, or perhaps more often, of love and grace and forgiveness, salvation, acceptance, community, these wonderful things many of us experience in church and have experienced in church. You would hear of judgmentalism and condemnation and shame and guilt and abuse and a long litany of other things. If you were here today expecting a perfect fellowship, you are in the wrong place. <laughs> There is a joke among pastors and that leading a church would be really great, really easy if it weren't for all those people, you know. We might could say that sometimes among our own selves. Well, being a part of church would be fantastic if it weren't for all those, you know, other people that think different than me, look different than me, believe different, talk different, all of these other things. The famous uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon told the story that he was once approached by a man who was on a very sincere search for the perfect body of believers. And, and he had walked from one to one to find the perfect body of believers. And Spurgeon replied that if he ever did find that place, that people, then he should not join for they would no longer be perfect. <laughs> we don't claim perfection. We don't claim sinlessness. We claim to be a body of believers who sin regularly, who fail one another regularly, who fail in our attempts and our call to holiness regularly. Yet we also claim to do our best to practice repentance and to practice forgiveness, to practice so many of these things we've talked about in these sermons this year and for much of our lives. 
we don't claim to be perfect. We claim to be striving to follow Christ and practicing these things together. But even that, we often fall short. And this is particularly for young believers, but not only disenchanting and discouraging and leads us often to fall away or, or, or maybe just to hang on to the fringes. That if I, I just show up kind of on the edge of things, I just show up, you know, a couple times here and there, I can be connected, but I don't have to kind of get into the, the meat of it. I don't have to get into the center of it. I don't have to know sort of how the sausage is made and I can be self-protected. And yet to be on the edge is not to be in the center. There's this call we talked about last week for all of us to dive into the work of God, to participate in the study of God's word together, in fellowship together, in prayer together, in the breaking of bread together. The main idea, the big idea of this passage, friends, of this sermon, is that the Spirit is on the move, what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. The Spirit is calling the church forward in this passage in Acts and today, the Spirit continues to do in this passage amazing things as the Spirit does today. But regularly, starting in Acts 5, continuing on until our very morning, temptations and distractions arise that threaten to get the church off its mission that threaten to get the church off what the Spirit is leading it to do. Things like air conditioners going out. I'm not gonna say it's spiritual warfare, but I'm not gonna say it's not. <laughs> Some of these things are our own making, our own decisions. Some of these things are the great tempter at work in our midst. Some of these are cultural and larger forces. But we will be less than ideal. The less than ideal will come regularly and often, and we should expect it in the church, but there is a word for us on how to follow the Spirit and cultivate vibrant koinonia in spite of these temptations in our passage today. So with that, we turn to Acts 5. If you've got your Bibles with you, you're welcome to turn with me as we walk through this story in Acts 5. Here at the end of Acts 4, we kind of finished up uh, 2 last week. We're moving on to into 4, beginning of 5 this week. At the end of Acts 4, we see a little bit of a repetition of what we talked about in Acts 2 last week. We have this voluntary and seemingly spontaneous sharing of their goods with one another, that people were selling property. They were selling what, what they claimed to own and laying it at the apostles' feet, which is the equivalent of giving it to the church so that those who had need might have their needs met. And, and we talked a little bit last week, and we will in future weeks. There's access, there's a, a redefinition of stuff, redefinition of those things we claim to own. It's no longer in the, the eyes of this early church for our potential benefit, for our riches, for our gain, for our security. No, it's all redefined that God wants our needs met, yes, but also what is extra, what is surplus is now used for the betterment of the community for the furtherance of the kingdom of God, for the meeting of needs. And so we see this, and we see several, and Joseph does this. He sells a piece of property, and Joseph is so holy, uh, so the, the spirit of God manifests in him that the apostles rename him Barnabas, who we come to know as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Boy, if you get renamed son of encouragement, 
you're probably following Christ fairly closely. The Spirit of God is in you and operative in you. And then we roll over to five. And Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple, decide to sell some property and give it to the church as well, to give it to the apostles as well. There in verse five, verse five one, they, uh, excuse me, chapter five, verse one, they sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge, make sure that they're you know, in this together. He kept back for himself part of the property. Now we'll see later on in the passage that it wasn't wrong to keep some back for himself. That wasn't the sin. What seems to be the sin is that when he and, and, and his wife go to give it to the apostles, they adjust the sale value of the property. <laughs> they, they strike it out. And, and instead of saying, we sold it for this much and we needed this much for our own use, and so we're giving the rest to the church. No, he, he kind of adjusted that and said, we're giving all of it. They, they lied about it. You know, we don't have to ask why, I don't think. Don't we all know that impulse to make ourselves just seem a little bit more generous than we are, a little bit more holy than we are? I mean, maybe it was jealousy. Boy, Barnabas got a cool nickname. I mean, he gets to be son of encouragement. What about old Ananias? What are they going to rename me if I do this? Maybe it was out of misplaced jealousy Maybe it was just sort of caught up in this. They, because on one hand, this is an incredibly generous thing. It doesn't even seem like they held back a big portion of this. We don't really know, but kind of, if we're following it, it seems like they held back some, but they gave most of it. How many of us have sold property and, you know, maybe kept 20 for us and given 80 to the church? Maybe some of you have. Wonderful, and that would be seen as an incredibly generous thing. You know, I've sold things and, and have given 10% of that to the church and felt like that was in line with some of the teaching. If we've profited for something, if something has blessed us to tithe 10%, it seems like they do much more than this. On the one hand, it's generous. They're part of the, the life of the believers. They're portrayed as, as genuine believers, part of the fellowship. And yet they lied about it. We understand, I think, that impulse. If you don't understand it, bless you, <laughs> bless you. But I think most of us struggle with that from time to time, if not regularly, that impulse to present a self that is different from the private self, better than the private self, more generous, more holy, more Christ-like, more whatever it is we're insecure about. We understand it. The Holy Spirit reveals to Peter what Ananias has done. Peter says to Ananias, why has the Holy Spirit, why has Satan filled your heart and caused you to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan's temptation doesn't let Ananias and Sapphira off the hook but it does show there's something more at work here in this body, more than just our own selfishness, more than just our own insecurities. Uh, Satan himself is at work drawing people away, trying to throw a wrench into this movement that is going so well. Ananias is given no chance to respond, no chance to confess and repent. 
but he breathes his last in that moment and falls down dead. Three hours passed. Sapphira, Sapphira comes by, perhaps looking for her husband, who knows? Peter questions her, and her lie agreed with that of her husband. And when confronted in the lie, she too falls down dead. And great fear came upon the church and all those who heard it. The instant nature of the punishment, the seemingly drastic nature of it is shocking. It's a hard text to read. It's a hard text to attempt to apply to us today. I think the shocking nature is the point. It illustrates how serious God takes holiness in the church. Their lie, their sin, was a threat to everything else that was going so well, the signs and the wonders, the spirit's movement, the people being added to their number, to the koinonia itself, the fellowship itself. It was a disease that if left unchecked would have spread because sin unchecked always begets more sin. Brokenness always begets more brokenness in our life without help without medicine, without forgiveness. It's viral. We are told that the wages of sin is death, and the only thing that holds death at bay for us sinners is the grace of Jesus. This initial threat is dealt with severely as a warning, as an illustration to the rest of the church for all time, how God prizes holiness in his people, Christ-likeness in his people, obedience to the Spirit in his people, the church. Throughout Acts, throughout the New Testament, these threats and temptations continue to occur. Fast forward to Acts 6, and they're having the distribution of the goods to those who are hungry, particularly the widows. And very quickly, it, it's apparent, and there's a complaint risen, that, that the Greek widows, the non-Jewish widows, are being receiving less than the, the Jewish widows. And the apostles have to create a committee. They're good Baptists. You know, we face a problem, we create a committee. That's what we do. Then we create a committee on committees to run those committees. And I'm waiting for the committee on committee on committees to choose that. But it's, it's wonderful, right? This is why we do this. You, you look for gifted people to solve some of the problems and it frees others to do the things they're called to do, to run the ministry. Much of the rest of the New Testament, almost all of these letters written by Paul and Peter and others are addressing temptations and difficulties and failures of the church. They're written, most of them, with a blessing of some sort and a greeting and then to say, here's how you're failing to live up to the call of God on your life. Here's where you are not living according to the gospel. And here's my encouragement you to do so. Here's how you do it. Here's my encouragement in this. These threats, these temptations, these challenges to the church are regular. They are constant. They are coming regularly. And so for us, friends, today, when we face the church that is less than ideal, 
we are in great company <laughs> with the earliest church. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't strike us as, as failure. It should strike us as this is what it means to attempt this grand experiment of koinonia, to attempt to be brothers and sisters in Christ together. So what do we do with this text? What can we learn from it today? Now, let me say this. If you lie, I see some of you sweating. I see some of you sweating. Yeah. If you lie, if you misrepresent, if you fall short of this ideal, which we all do, I don't think God's gonna strike you down. I think we are covered by grace. We are covered by forgiveness. We're covered by repentance and the deep love of Jesus for us. If this was the case, none of us would be here today. We would have been struck down far before this day. And so we can remove that. But what do we learn from this? A few lessons. I already said this, I'm gonna say it again. Threats to holiness will appear in our lives and in the church regularly and often. Sometimes those threats are individual, temptations that we face, sin that, that we experience or commit that, that brings itself into the body. Sometimes those are things of our own making, things that, that we just sit, screw up or don't get right. Sometimes those are results of temptation by the great tempter that is at work, uh, spiritually affecting a body or an individual or a family. Sometimes but threats to holiness will appear regularly and often. We shouldn't be surprised. We should anticipate them. We should look for them. In some ways, we should welcome them because it means that God is present here and something wants to work against that. And so we fight for holiness. We cultivate koinonia in our midst. So don't be surprised. Don't be shaken. Second, when sin and brokenness appear, this text teaches us to deal with it decisively and quickly. Not exactly like Peter. It's not what I'm advocating. But we shouldn't allow sin to remain or to be unconfronted when we know it exists in our midst. Now, I'm not advocating us being sin police, right? This doesn't mean we need to, you know, kind of have our head on a swivel like our football coach taught us in high school, you know, always looking for sin out there and being a bird dog ready to pounce on it whenever we just sniff it. No. But as we experience koinonia, as we study the word of God, as we pray with one another, as we break bread together, as we are the church together, there will be times when we know lies have been told or sin has been committed. And we have fallen short of holiness in this area or that area, a friend has. And we should seek to help not as one who condemns, not as one who heaps shame, not as one who's kicking somebody out of the fellowship. No, but out of love. We love one another too much to allow sin to remain unchecked, unconfronted, untalked about 
in our midst. Churches have been far too good for far too long of sweeping some of these things under the rug and just hoping they go away. And sometimes they do, but often they just mildew and fester and get worse and worse and worse. And so I say this, friends, not as a threat, but as a promise. I love you too much. If I know of sin in your life or sin in one area, to not come talk to you about it. I love this church too much to allow sin where it exists communally to fester and spread and infect and not have the opportunity to be brought in the air for a confession and repentance and restoration. We do this with an eye toward the holiness of the community and one another towards restoration, towards love increasing but we deal with it seriously and directly. Three, we strive for holiness by staying close to Jesus and following the Holy Spirit. It's easy to stay on the edge of church and remain naive, to stay on the edge of worship, the edge of Bible study, the edge of being involved in the life of church and just not know anybody well enough to know what struggles a church is having or people are having. That is no way to live. It's no way to live. It's no way to love. It's, it's no way to be a person of faith together. It's also easy to be discouraged. And we all face this. When we get involved in a Sunday school, in a community of people, inevitably the, the failings and the frailty and the little picadillos of this particular group will annoy us and frustrate us. And it's easy or, or, or drastically disappoint us sometimes. It's easy to be discouraged and walk away and say, oh, there's another place down the road. I'm sure it's better than this. There isn't. There, it may be shinier, it may be better for a while, who knows, but all of us are really about the same when it comes down to it. It's easy just to drop out and be away, leave. But maturity in the spirit, friends, is committing to serve the church, to love one another in spite of all of our flaws. It, it, it's committing, I said last week, that koinonia sticks where the Spirit of God creates this in our midst, it sticks, and maturity sticks. It holds, it prays, it blesses, it loves, it seeks to, to help one another grow in Christ's likeness, not ignoring our flaws, but entering into these things and seeking the Spirit's movement in spite of them together. I had friends... In the previous place we lived, they had funnily visited our church and gone to another church, trying not to hold that against people. Try, don't always succeed. And two of them came and wanted to have breakfast with me, and they said, Pastor, Matt, we, uh, we really, we know you're doing a good thing. We know there's several other good churches in town, but we really want to get past sort of the modern church and get back to the church how it was in the Bible. Like, we want to kind of peel the layers of sort of bureaucracy and institutionalization and, and time away, and we want to get back to the pure church. They kept saying that, the pure New Testament church. I was like, all right, well, let's talk about it and tried not to take it too personally. And so they, they after a lot of reading and a lot of conversation with me and some other pastors, they, they started a house church. 
It was a group of three or four families. They were our family, and they, they said, we're gonna, no, no, no staff. We're gonna do the teaching ourselves, and, which also meant no children's ministry, and they all had a whole parcel of kids between them all. Um, and they said, we're not gonna do any budget. We're just gonna give everything away to other people. That was a wonderful thing to do, and, and we're gonna teach all, the kids are gonna be here, we're gonna teach it all, and again, that's a wonderful thing to do. But I think they had only really read through Acts 2. <laughs> they hadn't kept going. And after about two or three months, one of the families visited our church again. I was like, what happened? What's going on? They're like, well, we started disagreeing over where we should give our money and who should get our money. And God, the kids were so loud and we couldn't do anything because, and it wasn't our kids, it was that other family's kids. You know, they didn't parent quite like us and some wanted to meet on Saturday and some wanted to meet on the wind, you know. There is no pure church without these temptations. We face this together, friends. Threats to holiness will appear often and regularly. When they do, we should take them seriously. And as the Spirit leads, deal with them effectively. And in the meantime, we should strive for holiness by sticking close to Jesus and following the Spirit, committing ourselves to these four essentials we talked about. We, we study God's Word together and let this shape us, inform us, help this lead us to repentance and forgiveness of ourselves and one another. We, we should pray with and one another, again, allowing the Spirit to speak into our lives and shape us and form us into the people God is calling us to be, to do the things God is calling us to do through His Spirit. We, we should break bread with one another. We should share our lives with one another over meals and over fire pits and in activities that we do in any way we can get together and visit about our lives and our families and what's important to us and what God is doing in our lives and our struggles and, and through these things, the koinonia is created by the Holy Spirit and it sends us out on mission and it sends us into our community and at times it will reveal uh, sin and brokenness to us that we have the privilege of, of, of helping with. It'll, it'll send us to issues of justice around the world. Who knows what the Spirit will do, but it all begins here. So let us strive for holiness together, friends. Your name, let me pray for us. God, we come before you now knowing we face difficulties like every church has faced since this earliest of churches. We face temptations, we, taste, we face threats. But God, we are empowered by your spirit. And we know that from time to time, we will get ahead of you or we will move behind you or we will get to the left of you or to the right of you, God, but we're continually struggling, seeking together how to live step in step with who you are and who you are calling us to be and what you are calling us to do. God, we beg, we ask, we implore, create this koinonia in our midst that will carry us through, God. As you did in Acts, may we see your spirit do amazing, powerful, and wonderful things in our midst. May we sit in awe of you, and may that draw us to greater love. In your name we pray.
We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with senior pastor Matt Homeyer. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.